This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good morning and welcome to the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at UC San Diego. I'm Steve Clary, a member of the Executive Committee and the coordinator for this lecture, lecture series on Mexico 20 years after NAFTA. We will begin our series today with Melissa Floca, who will present an overview of the social and economic changes that have occurred in Mexico over the 20 years since the signing of the North American Free Trade Agreement. Why don't we start with this? Let's see a show of hands from people who've been to Mexico. Wow. Okay. What about people who've been to Tijuana? Okay, wonderful. Anyone who didn't raise your hand, you have five weeks to, to, to take your, a field trip down across the border. Um, and I think that you know, we're very lucky to have a wonderful classroom just you know, 30 minutes away in Tijuana. And um, you know, I was, I was going to show a slide here of our metropolitan area, our binational metropolitan area. That's um, five million people. It's two countries. You can see the border there. Um, and in fact, we're part of three Californias. So it's not just the state of California, but we have the state of Baja California and Baja California Sur. Um, it looks kind of like Chile, but it's not. And I wanted to give you just some quick facts about Mexico today, which seems like this room probably is already fairly up to date on. But um, 115 million people, 12th largest economy in the world, um, significant foreign direct investment, a labor force which is not agricultural, it's um, services and, and industry. Poverty, so you have 50% of Mexicans living below the poverty line, um, very similar to the U.S. in that Mexico is a highly unequal country. So you have lots of very wealthy individuals, lots of very poor individuals. Exports, 80% almost of Mexico's exports go to the U.S. So Mexico is an extremely important trading partner for the state of California um, and for the U.S. as a whole. Still very much a Catholic country. So the Spanish conquest um, has left an important cultural legacy in Mexico today. You see that in the way that Mexican cities are organized, the religion that people have. Um, and, and something that's, I think, newer and, and quite interesting is the high level of urbanization that you see in Mexico. So 80% of the population lives in an urban setting, and that's something that's changed rapidly. So this year we're celebrating the 20th anniversary of NAFTA. Um, um, and over the last 20 years in Mexico, you've seen huge change. Um, urbanization, which I already mentioned, epidemiological transition. So people in Mexico no longer die of you know, there's not so much infant mortality, maternal mortality. Mexican health system is struggling with cancer, diabetes, um, very similar to the kinds of problems that we have in the U.S. In addition to that, you have seen huge economic growth in Mexico. Um, what does that mean? Well, that means that Mexico and the U.S. are vying for the first place tie of who is the most obese country. Uh, Mexico took over from the U.S. this year. And in addition to that, Bill Gates and Carlos Slim go back and forth every year about who is the world's richest man. So these are some of the things that the last 20 years of growth in Mexico have meant. 
I want to take a minute to talk about demographic transition. Um, something that a lot of people will understand very well in this room is what's happened in Mexico. Um, in the 1970s, you saw the fertility rate drop dramatically. And so Mexico has its own generation of baby boomers as a result of that. This is what the population structure looked like in 1970. Then in 2000, you see a bulge at the bottom um, where population is really falling dramatically. So this group of individuals in Mexico is not, doesn't have a name like the baby boomers, which is a very positive, growth-oriented, you know, take-over-the-world kind of name. These individuals are called the ninis. Ninis, which means ni trabaja ni estudia. So these are individuals that in many cases have had a lot, a lot of trouble finding their place in, in the Mexican economy and in the global economy. You can watch what's going to happen in Mexico with that generation. And you can think about what a tremendous challenge this is for the Mexican government. You have a, a large group of individuals who have struggled to, to find decent jobs, um, and, and many of them are in the informal sector instead of the formal sector. So many of these workers are not part of the tax base. Um, they don't have all of the social security and, and things like that that formal sector workers have. And I think that this is one of the most important challenges that Mexico faces today. I want to talk just a minute about Mexico's rich cultural legacy. So Mexico has you know, over 10,000 years of extremely vibrant culture. And um, today, that contemporary culture, you know, Mexicans are important in the arts, in literature, um, something that Mexico is also very good at, uh, soap operas. How many of you watch telenovelas? Another <laughs> hands up. Anybody watch telenovelas? Oh, come on. No one watches telenovelas? Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> So I think that I need to digress from my presentation for just a second. We had um, a group of researchers who were here from Ghana for two weeks with us. We were sharing best practices on a public health project. And the first day that they were here, I gave a presentation to them kind of like this. You know, Mexico, you probably don't know much about it. It's a big country, but not important to Ghana. And about 10 minutes in, this guy raised his hand and he said, oh, no, we know all about Mexico and Ghana because they get their soap operas. And so in Ghana, people hurry home in the afternoon to watch the soaps, the Mexican soaps. And they, I mean, this is actually just incredible. They, they're salsa clubs in Ghana, so you can go out salsa dancing. There are radio shows where people, um, they have competitions where you call in and you have to to sing the theme song for, the, for that day's soap. So, <laughs> so Mexican soap operas, I mean, this is a, a legitimate exportation of Mexican culture. Um, people are watching them all over the world, and, and they're influencing the way that people behave and dress and dance and, you know, what they do on their radio shows in, in Ghana. So um, that's not entirely tangential. You might recognize this lovely um, young lady, La Gaviota, She's a very important Mexican soap opera star. She's also Mexico's first lady. So she's married to Enrique Peña Nieto, who um, took power last year, a year ago uh, in Mexico. 
He married La Gaviota one year before he announced his bid for, for election. Um, in really kind of a Romeo and Juliet story, I mean, I remember watching on TV, I think the night that he proposed to her, and you know, they were up on the balcony in the hotel, and it was, yes, made for TV. Um, here are Mexico's last four presidents Zedillo signed NAFTA he was the last president from the 72 year um, one party rule under the PRI he handed over power in oh sorry in 2000 in 2000 to President Vox who was the first um, president from the opposition party Then in 2006, Calderon came to power. Much of what you've seen happen in the last um, 10 years or so in Mexico in terms of the huge uptick in violence had a lot to do with his his policies. And then in 2012, we had, sorry guys, President Peña Nieto come to power. Um, and, And there was really, you know, kind of a triple whammy that happened in Mexico. You had the huge economic slump in 2009. Um, Then you had drug wars, violence breaking out. So people had tremendous hopes when the PAN came to power in 2000 uh, under Fox. And then they were really, you know, quite disappointed by what was going on in the Calderon administration. And then you have this beautiful, you know, soap opera star come along and marry the the pre-presidential candidate. And now the pre's back in power. So after you know, 72 years of basically a dictatorship, a 12-year break with the PAN. Now we have um, the PRI back in power under Peña Nieto. So I wanted to make just a few more comments um, before I turn the floor over to David Mares. I think that, you know, in addition to, to the things that we've talked about today, Mexico is also a wonderful, has been a wonderful laboratory for social policy. So you, um, you know, in Mexico you see... Things like conditional cash transfers. This was the first country, basically, that had a, a scheme of conditional cash transfers where poor individuals were given money in exchange for taking their kids to the doctor, sending their kids to school. And this is something that has been copied, I mean, the world over. So you have dozens and dozens and dozens of countries who have implemented this. And, and now what you see um, is even a push for not just conditional cash transfers from poverty alleviation programs, but simply cash transfers where governments just give money to poor people and let them you know, do as they wish with it. So these are, these are huge innovations in social policy, and, and Mexico has been a place that's been very innovative in that sense. In addition, in the last 10 years, you've seen universal health care coverage extended to all Mexicans. So Many, many Mexicans were left out of, um, didn't have access to health care because they were informal sector workers. And the government has basically unveiled a, a universal health care coverage scheme. It's not perfect. Um, that's a lot of challenges to providing free health care to, to a nation of 115 million people. Um, but I think Mexico has, has done a lot of very innovative things. And in fact, right now, <coughs> what you see in Mexico is an extremely ambitious reform agenda. I don't know how much of this you've picked up in the, in the newspapers here, but Mexico is basically reforming everything that you can reform. So there's energy reform going on right now. You haven't had private investment in the energy sector in Mexico, and that's, that's changing. Um, you also have education reform taking place in Mexico. So Mexico is 
making strides to reform its education system. I don't know if any of you saw in the papers when Elbester uh, was arrested. She had been the head of the Mexican Teachers Union for a number of years, um, a resident of San Diego as well, a very nice house here and um, lots of expensive shopping trips, and she you know, was, was um, basically sent to jail because of corruption. So uh, the current government is making huge strides around trying to push a reform agenda forward. Mexico doesn't have re-election, so none of the offices, you know, mayors can't be re-elected, congressmen can't be re-elected, pres- the president can't be re-elected, and that's something that Mexico is working on changing as well, which will, you know, I think really revolutionize what, the, what their democracy looks like. Okay. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you, very Thank you for the invitation to be here. Um, I'm going to talk about violence in the drug trade. Uh, at the beginning, I will say some general things about violence in the drug trade, and then I will look specifically at Mexico uh, uh, so we can understand this. Uh, the thing I want to point out is that violence in the drug trade is an old issue in Mexico, Um, But there are new policies that the Mexican government is adopting to try and address that violence. Uh, And part of what I'm going to do today is explain why you've had that uh, shift to new policies. First, some perspective. This is uh, the homicide rates for the UN Office on Drug Control. Uh, U.S., this is per 100,000. The United States, the homicide rate is 4.7. And then you can see... This, this is what we think about because we live here, right? So when we look at these kinds of numbers, we think, oh my God, it's a lot of violence. But if you look at Mexico and Latin America, you see Mexico isn't anywhere near the most violent country in Latin America. Mexico is not all that different from Brazil in terms of violence. But we don't have that perspective about Brazil, and we have this perspective about Mexico, Part of it is because Mexico's right next door and therefore we pay more attention to it. Uh, and part of it's just a whole bunch of things that get caught up in trying to understand the illegal drug trade. And so it becomes easy to look south as the, the source of our problems. Um, you'll notice a number of these in here are in Central America or the Caribbean. Okay, and I'll make an, I'll make an, uh, an argument today that, um, in fact, these uh, 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 high rates of violence are, in fact, linked uh, partly to uh, the illegal drug trade into the United States. Um, but the first thing to say about the illegal drug trade in the United States is our most pressing problem in terms of use, abuse, danger... Uh, are not imported illegal drugs. They're pharmaceuticals that are being used without a prescription. So our illegal drug trade problem is not meth from Mexico, uh, cocaine from heroin, uh, from Colombia. We do have some of that, but the numbers of people who actually use those are very reduced. It's the prescription drugs without a prescription uh, uh, issue uh, that is dominant in the United States after marijuana. All right, so Mexican challenges. The drug trade is illegal. It's illegal in Mexico. It's illegal in the United States. It's illegal around the world. 
Okay, that is a challenge for Mexico, it's a challenge for the United States, it's a challenge for countries around the world. Um, violence in Mexico exploded in the 2000s. Right? Mexico had a declining homicide rate right up into the early 2000s. It was looking very much like the United States on homicide as well as all of those other measures like obesity, right? It's getting closer to the United States. And then in the early 2000s, there's this spike of violence in Mexico. So uh, the question uh, for a lot of people looking at Mexico, uh, in Mexico and outside of Mexico, is does significantly reducing the violence require significantly reducing the illegal drug trade? Okay. Another way of thinking about that is, are drugs and violence intimately linked? We can answer yes. That's the way the U.S. government officially looks at Mexico. It sees violence as a result of drugs. Okay? We could answer no, it's not intimately linked. Okay? Um, and we could also say, well, maybe it's not intimately linked, but you know, these drug trafficking organizations, the DTOs, got their start in drugs, and now they're powerful, and they'll continue to uh, 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 be a violence problem for Mexico and a crime problem for Mexico, even if we uh, do something about drugs, uh, so that Mexico's sort of stuck with this problem in the long term. Okay? What I want to argue is that, in fact, this is true. Drugs and violence are not intimately linked, and I'll give you theoretical reasons for that, and I'll give you empirical uh, uh, evidence for that argument, uh, and argue that, in fact, this isn't as pressing a problem as a number of people uh, are trying to make it out uh, for Mexico. All right. Um, theoretical reasons to answer no, empirical reasons, okay. And extortion, human trafficking, kidnapping, those are the other things that the drug trafficking organizations have gotten involved in. Uh, and they're actually easier to combat uh, than illegal drug trafficking, and that's a result of the characteristics of the goods and services that create profit for cr for criminals um, when you're extorting human traffic involved in human trafficking or kidnapping, uh, as opposed to uh, drug trafficking. Uh, you know, drugs are easy to conceal, to hide. Um, they're incredibly valuable per little piece of of uh, uh, item. Um, if you think about a human being, you know, a human being is harder to hide than a, than a baggie of cocaine, a bag of cocaine. Um, if you think about extortion, to extort somebody, you actually have to have some uh, access to that individual, and you're not going to extort just... Uh, um, uh, uh, somebody on the, on the street, you're going to want to extort somebody who's got the kind of money that makes it worthwhile to you to, ex to extort. Uh, so that exposes you as the criminal, makes it easier for you to get caught, makes it harder for you to make a profit, etc. So for all of those reasons, yes, the drug trafficking organizations have diversified, but the diversification is not the problem uh, uh, when you think about uh, um, uh, the continued crime uh, in Mexico, uh, even if we were able to do something about, uh, about drugs, okay? Um, 
if Mexico is going to com- combat this, it still needs a professional law enforcement and judiciary. This is really the problem as opposed to drugs, uh, as I'll point out uh, as we go through the next half hour or so. So in a sense, here's the puzzle. Mexico is currently racked by horrendous levels of violence linked to the illegal drug trade. But the United States, with the world's largest drug market in terms of value, okay, probably the largest number of drug dealers in the world, Okay, why? Because most people sell to only a few people. So if you consider that we have over 9.5 million people consuming illegal drugs in the United States uh, in the last 30 days, and you figure that a drug dealer probably sells to 10, 15, maybe at the most 20 people individually, and that drug dealer who's selling at that level hasn't imported or produced the drugs themselves. They got it from another distributor for, who got it from a wholesaler, who got it from a regional uh, 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 distributor, etc., etc. It turns out that the United States probably has the most uh, uh, number of uh, uh, drug traffickers in the world. But we have very little drug-related violence in the United States. You saw our homicide rates. They're way down. Okay? And not all of those are linked to drugs. In fact, most of them are not linked uh, to the drug trade. So we have, a hot, we have a very large illegal drug market, but very low levels of violence. Okay? To make matters even more complicated, Mexico has been involved in the marijuana and heroin trade for decades, and the cocaine trade for more than a decade, yet it didn't have this level of violence until uh, somewhere around 2003, 2004, the violence begins to rise. Okay? Uh, so um, the question is why? Why all of a sudden do you get this spike in violence uh, in Mexico? And here's a theoretical argument. All right, and it's that violence has a value, okay? And that value is not inherent in a product. It's inherent in the conditions under which that product is made available, okay? So we'll call it rents. Rents are just uh, a lot of profit, ex- you know, theoretical uh, uh, definition of, of uh, a rent would be a profit above a level that a competitive market uh, would uh, provide. So just work with that. Rents means a lot of money, right? So competitive markets drive down rate rents. Competition means that people are competing away the the uh, excess uh, value above. As people go to somebody who could sell it for a little less, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. All right. The characteristics of illegal drugs, right? Just the physical characteristics of illegal drugs um, should mean that um, the markets would be competitive. Okay. There are low barriers to entry. It's really easy to make a lot of these substances. Okay. You don't need to worry about patents, right? Because it's illegal. <laughs> Right? Uh, it's easy to grow marijuana. Uh, it's, it's easy to make meth. Right? So low barriers to in, uh, entry, easy to produce, low capital requirements, size and weight, weight make transportation cheap. So there should be very competitive markets out there, which means that the rents associated with being in that production and sale should be low. Okay? Shouldn't be a very profitable market. The problem is... 
So why valuable? Why so valuable? Government policy that makes these substances illegal has contradictory, uh, uh, perverse impacts on the competitiveness of the drug markets. On the one hand, it supports competitiveness uh, because since it's illegal, people don't want to sell to a lot of people at the local level. Right? You want to sell to somebody that you have some confidence that they're not a government agent, a police agent, uh, and um, that uh, they won't go and tell the police. All right? Our jails are full of people who sold drugs to people that they didn't know. Right, who turned out either to be police informers or somebody who, you know, immediately as soon as they saw a police walking by, said, "Oh, I bought it from so and so. You know, here's my deal." Right, so drug dealers don't want to deal with those people normally. All right, uh, so uh, the fact that it's illegal should support competitiveness uh, in the market. Uh, there's an incentive to limit the number of people. A lot of people are demanding this stuff, so there should be a lot of traffickers out there. Uh, that's what a competitive market should look like. Um, but illegality also means that prices are high for the product. So there's an incentive for somebody to go out there and try and dominate the market. Okay? Uh, because the individual price per item is really valuable compared to the price of producing that value. So if you can dominate that market, if you can uh, 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 control that market, you can potentially get a lot of money. All right? So that, that stimulates uh, uh, the effort to try and uh, capture those rents. All right. The dynamics of violence then in this kind of a situation are that um, initially you, you try and ca uh, capture the rents by taking over the territory of somebody else. All right. Now, they're not going to want you to take over their territory. Right? Why doesn't the 7-Eleven manager go over to the Circle K manager with a baseball bat and say, I'm going to break your knees if your kneecaps if you sell alcohol on this block because I'm on this block and I'm selling alcohol. The reason he doesn't do that is twofold. One, the profit that you make from alcohol okay, doesn't justify the threat, the potential uh, uh, penalty for the threat. And secondly, the Circle K manager will push that little button and the police will show up. Right? But if you've got a, a, a drug distributor in this area and you come to him and you say, look, I want to control this area. Okay? The profits are very high, so you're willing to run the risk of either getting caught by the police or this guy pulling out his own gun and saying, I'm defending my territory. That's more likely to be the response because he's not going to call the police because he can't very well call the police and say, uh, I'm selling cocaine here and now somebody wants to you know, dominate this area. Right? So in that kind of a situation to protect your business, you've got to protect it yourself. Okay? And that's what, what leads to this, this underlying part of this, the potential for violence there. All right? uh, now, effective criminal justice institutions respond to violence. They don't respond to drugs. Come on. Yes, drugs are illegal in the United States. But we know there's drugs everywhere in the United States. There's drugs in Del Mar. There's drugs in La Jolla. There's drugs on the UCSD campus. I ask my students all the time. And they say, yes, there's drugs in the dorms. Do we see the police kicking in doors, you know, and arresting students, frisking them on the... 
No, go into a poor neighborhood, you'll see that, but not in good middle class or upper class neighborhoods or, and not on college campuses. All right, so we have our priorities about how much we want to put into fighting the illegal drug trade. Uh, but when violence breaks out, then we do want the police there. Okay, if violence breaks out on the UCSD campus, you can bet the police are going to be here. Immediately, parents will say, where are the police? The university administrators will say, where are the police? There's violence here. We, an empirical example of that is the United States in the 1980s. Think, we're all of the age, well, we remember Miami Vice, right? The television shows. And it was all about druggies shooting at each other, right? Over and over again. Why? Because there's this moment in the 1980s Crack hits the streets of the United States. The profit potential of crack is incredibly high. It's not that crack is a maniacal drug. Science has now told us crack's impact on people is no different from powder cocaine. Right? But we had this perception of it because the level of violence. Why? Because it's a new market and there were, there were young gangs out there who thought that if they could corner this market, they could make a ton of money associated with cornering that market, and they started shooting at each other. Okay? They weren't shooting at middle-class kids. They weren't shooting at the police. They were shooting at each other. But every once in a while, a middle-class kid gets in the way. Every once in a while, a policeman shows up and you know, gets hit. And so the U.S. government came down really hard. The U.S. criminal justice system came down really hard on the violence Okay? The United States is the number one country in terms of the percentage of our population behind bars. Okay? 40% of those people are there for some drug-related issue. Okay? On probation, on parole, we are number one. Why? It's the legacy of the way in which we responded to the violence of the 1980s. We weren't that before the 1980s. Okay? So what that means is that the criminal justice system increases the cost to people who would do violence. So now, if you're a criminal and you want to do violence, you have to think about not only how much rent can I capture if I was able to get to dominate this area, but what's the risk to me of going after dominating that area? Okay? If dominating requires violence, then the risk to me is that, in fact, this criminal justice system will come down hard on me, okay? not because I'm selling drugs, but because of the violence. So maybe it's better for me to just make my regular money selling drugs and not run the risk on that violence side. Okay? If we think about that, when the costs of, of the violence exceed the, the benefits of the violence, uh, then violence should go down, even though the underlying crime does not go down. Right? So how does this relate to Mexico? Um, well, Mexico's got a really bad criminal justice system. It's ineffective. It's not just corrupt. It's ineffective. They arrest the wrong people. Now what happens when you arrest the wrong people? You, you've spent your resources arresting somebody and the criminal goes free. So if you think about deterrence and crime, what does the criminal think? Well, I'm unlikely to be caught because it's easier to catch an innocent person because they're just walking down the street and the police say, you look guilty, let me grab you and I'll take you to, I'll take you to court. Uh, and then the judge says, you know, well, you look guilty to me, so you're guilty, so you go to jail for 10 years. All right? But the criminal, the real criminal, goes free. 
So the Mexican criminal justice system has the problem, the underlying problem of it's ineffective uh, as well as corrupt. In that kind of a situation, if we go back to that slide, uh, if you get a if you get an activity that promises huge profit levels if you can dominate if you can monopolize that activity um, and monopolizing the activity means using violence to monopolize it um, the disincentives towards violence are just not very strong okay so what I want to argue now as we turn empirically to look at Mexico uh, is that this this is the result, this is the Mexico uh, divvied up by the dr- different drug trafficking organizations. Okay? This is the result not of illegal drugs per se, not of the fact that Mexico um, uh, has historically been involved in the marijuana trade, not of the fact that Mexico has a weak uh, 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 judicial uh, system, Okay? It's a fact of what's happening up here and, in, and what happened in here. All right? So with that as a promise, let's go through the empirics. All right. Mexico has long been involved in uh, the, the uh, illegal drug trade. It's got a new strategy now. Uh, uh, Melissa alluded to it under Calderon. Uh, the new strategy is use the army to go after uh, the drug trade um, and bring down the power of the state uh, on the illegal drug trade. All right. Uh, so why does Mexico adopt this new strategy? Is it because democracy, the old pre-government, was in league with the, with the drug traffickers, and now we got democratization, and you have a new party uh, uh, in power. Um, uh, is it that PAN is a right-wing uh, uh, government? Uh, we know they are from the political right, and the political right's supposed to be tough on crime. Um, uh, is it because um, Calderon is looking around and saying, well, we want to win the elections, the congressional elections and the next presidential elections, even if I can't win, I want the pawn to win it. So I've got to show the, the voters in Mexico that we're tough on crime. This is why I'm going to call out the army. Uh, or is it that, in fact, the drug trade had gotten out of control? Okay? It had gotten out of control uh, in terms of violence, not in terms of um, the substances themselves, but in terms of the violence, and that any national government would have responded pretty much the way Calderon did. The, one, the argument I want to make um, is that it's not Calderon. Any Mexican president in that kind of a situation would have called out the army, would have called out the army. We can make all kinds of arguments for why the army is not a good way to fight the illegal drug trade, and I believe that. Okay? But when we're talking about the levels of violence that were there and the incapacity of the national police, uh, it is very difficult to think of anything that could have lowered the rate of violence in the medium term. In the short term, it's going to go up. Okay, because the, 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 the criminals aren't going to say, oh my God, we used to make a lot of money, you know, we used to kill each other, but we made a lot of money, those of us who survived, and now that the government's called out the army, well, we're just going to go home. No, they're going to first try and corrupt the army, they're going to try and fight the army, they're going to try and hide from the army, go to new places where the army isn't. All right, so all of a sudden Michoacan is a big part of the drug trade. It didn't used to be. Okay. Um, so, uh, uh, 
I think we should be looking at this rather than thinking about whether it's democracy, pan, or the individual uh, Calderon. So what happened? In the old days, Mexico was involved in, in marijuana trade and what's called black tar ter- heroin, cheap, bad quality heroin. And it, it generated profits, but not huge profits. Yes, there's profits in marijuana, but it's not huge. Okay? Uh, and in the old days, Culiacan was the drug capital of Mexico, and if you were in Culiacan in the 1960s and the 1970s, Culiacan was a violent place. It's the capital of the state of Sinaloa. It's a violent place. I remember being there in the 70s. Every day you would read in the newspaper about people being killed. Okay? And people being killed associated with the illegal drug trade. But it was limited to Culiacan. It wasn't happening in Tijuana. It really wasn't. There was a little bit of it in Juarez, but not, not a big level. Why? Because actually the profits associated with marijuana just aren't that enticing for people to go out there and put their lives on the line and the lives of all of these other people that they have to pay in some way to be their foot soldiers. There's just not that much money in marijuana. Okay. Uh, and black tar heroin was poor quality. There wasn't that much there either. But now what's happened is cocaine. Cocaine is a very valuable product. Okay. And Colombian heroin is high quality heroin. So it's very valuable. So suddenly the value associated with the new drugs that are in Mexico has gone up dramatically. What is that? That's an incentive to try and go capture uh, those rents. All right. Uh, Mexico became a transit zone for the Colombian drug, uh, illegal drug trade. Right? It wasn't in the past. Colombia didn't wake up one morning and say, oh, I like, I like Mexicans. Let's go through Mexico. No, they used to send all this stuff through the, through the Gulf, all right? Uh, but now it's going through uh, Mexico. It started first with small-time smugglers. Colombians were looking for somebody just to transit this stuff to the United States. And who are you going to get? You're not going to go to, to some uh, tourist in Mexico and say, oh, you want to take Mexican tourists, you're going to the United States, take this. No, you're going to get a criminal who knows how to hide from the law, the Mexican law enforcement, uh, or pay off the Mexican law enforcement, and who knows how to smuggle things across the U.S. border. Okay, whether it's clothes from the United States into Mexico or illegal aliens from Mexico into the United States or whatever it is, guns from the U.S. into Mexico, but they know the routes, they know how to get there. So the Colombians want them, and there are criminals, all right? Um, so first they get these small-time smugglers in Mexico. They be, those small-time smugglers selling, uh, smuggling uh, cocaine and heroin, high-quality heroin now are getting richer. As they're getting richer, they, become ind- they, they want to become independent uh, of the Colombians and be business people themselves, just like the Colombians are. Right? Um, and um, so in, Mex- in Mexico today, we now have Mexican traders who are actually moving backward uh, into Colombia, uh, backward into the Andes, and trying to get around the Colombians who used to provide them uh, with the substance. They've gotten very uh, wealthy, they've gotten very powerful, they've moved into Central America, etc., uh, etc. Et so that's something that's different in Mexico. And the other thing that's different in Mexico is that consumption in Mexico is going up as well. Okay? The U.S. government used to say, you know, drugs, that's a U.S. problem. Not our problem. We grow it, and the U.S. consumes it. 
Okay, but today there is more consumption, not of marijuana in Mexico, but there's more consumption of cocaine, of heroin, uh, of methamphetamine. So now the Mexican government is, has to confront that issue. There are different ways you could confront it, but it has to confront it. It can't ignore it anymore. All right. Uh, so all of this leads to a higher value uh, in the illegal drug trade in Mexico. Uh, that means that there's going to be more corruption as criminals try and hide their activities from the, law, the good law enforcement by paying off the bad law enforcement. Um, that corruption is going to affect the state's ability to deliver to voters. And yes, Mexico is now a democracy. So now any government in office is going to be thinking about uh, my ability to deliver goods to the Mexican voters. If you, you looked at that uh, 50% of Mexicans uh, living under poverty, that is a disgrace in Latin America. In Chile, it's about 18%. In Argentina, it might be 21%. I mean, these are, Mexico is way behind. Uh, and uh, the government knows that. And the people know that. And they want a government in the democratic period. They want a government that will respond. So the government is finding that corruption is becoming more of an issue for it. Uh, And then the violence uh, is obviously more of an issue uh, for the Mexican uh, government today than it was in the past. This is, this is what the drug trade used to look like, these red lines from Colombia, Colombian uh, drug trade. Here's Colombia down here. And it used to come through the Gulf and into the United States here or here in Florida. All right. The, the United States used the Coast Guard and the, the Navy uh, to, to block this route. Then the Colombians went this way and through the islands uh, and into Florida. And then the United States used, again, the Coast, moved the Coast Guard assets here and here. Initially, what the, what the Colombians did was uh, they used small planes and they sort of short flights here. And what did you need on these short hops? You just needed an airstrip and somebody with a sandwich and some jet and some airplane fuel. Um, and then the United States said, oh my God, you know, we, we've blocked these routes pretty effectively, not 100%, but pretty effectively. Now these planes, are, so we have to put our radar assets down here. So now we put our radar assets down here. The Colombians figure they can't send the airplanes, so now they got to send people. Well, if you send a Colombian into Nicaragua, He's going to be suspicious. Okay, you send a Colombian into Guatemala, into Mexico, and they're coming across, that's a suspicious person. So what you want is you want a local. Okay, so what's happened in Central America is the same thing is happening in Mexico, right? The Colombians get here, they get criminals, local criminals, and they say, we have a very valuable product. We will pay you a lot of money if you just transit this through your country to the next country. All right, and that money then goes to build these criminal networks at a time when the United States is putting radar here, but we're not doing anything to help local law enforcement and local judiciary systems be prepared for this new increase in wealth in the criminal side uh, in the region. Uh, So they're caught by surprise. Um, The other thing that catches Central America by the surprise is when the United States decides all of these druggies from the 80s uh, in Southern California and other parts, uh, you know, a lot of them turned out to be Central American migrants. So what do we do? We arrest them. We put them in our prisons for a while. They learn a little bit about all of that prison life and everything. And then we head them back to Central America without even telling the Central Americans, look, we're sending some pretty tough characters down here. 
be ready for them. No, we just dump them down there, all right? So Central America gets whammied by that, and Mexico gets whammied by, by that, all right? So the Colombians are moving the drug trade this way, okay? Not because that's their first option, but because the United States was successful in making it difficult to move it this way. The first thing they tried was going to Africa and Nigeria, but then the customs department said, you know, Nigerians are suspicious, so anybody come from Nigeria, we got to watch out for them. So then the Colombians, like good businessmen, the Colombians say, well, we can't use Nigerians anymore, got to use somebody else. Right? And then they hit the gold mine of, of Mexico. Why the gold mine of Mexico? Because we got this long border here and we have a long tradition of smuggling between the two areas. Smuggling weapons north to south, smuggling people and, and goods south to north, goods uh, north to south. When Mexico had a very protectionist drug uh, trade system, uh, you used to import stuff uh, from the United States. That meant smuggling it in. Car batteries, clothes, all kinds of things. You know, uh, So people learned how to do that. So that's that's who the Colombians wind up using. That provides them with a lot of money. In the old days, the government could say, like in the United States, well, I'm not paying attention to that. All right? uh, or some people would be corrupted by what was happening, uh, and uh, the federal government would say, well, you know, it's a local mayor, he's corrupt, big deal. Uh, all right? not democratic, and it really didn't impact anybody outside of that. Today, not only is it democratic, so the government has to care about that, uh, but in fact that, that mayor is now impacting the village next to him, uh, and you're getting competition between the two uh, areas uh, and the different drug trafficking organizations, and that bursts into violence. Um, so the old Mexican strategy of saying, well, the problem is in the United States, just isn't good enough anymore. Not good enough anymore. Even if they complain that, you know, the guns come from the United States. It's true that guns do come from the United States as well as some other places. But they do come from, but big deal. They're there. You got to deal with it because the guns are actually being used and killing people in Mexico. So you have to deal with it. You can't just say, it's not my, it's not my fault. All right. Um, and same thing with the demand uh, on the drug side. Uh, Mexico used to say, well, the demand's over there in the United States. The dominant demand is still in the United States. But big deal. The drugs, it's sucking drugs from Colombia up through Mexico into the United States. So big deal that the demand's in the, in the U.S. Mexico has to do something about the consequences of that trade coming up through Mexico and into the United States. Um, Calderon had very few options. Anybody, you know, if David Mares was Mexican president uh, at that time in Mexico, I would have had very few options. The police are corrupt. You can't use them. All right. Uh, now, the Mexican government has used the army off and on in the past. Okay. They like to keep the army out for the same reason we like to keep the army out in the United States. We have a huge drug trade in the United States. Okay. But we don't use the army for it most of the time. Right. Why? Two reasons. The, when the army confronts citizens, it's very different than when the police confront the citizens. The police are responsible to the local authorities. The local authorities are elected. Okay? Citizen complaints about the way they're being treated by the police can generate some kind of response. But when the army is there, who's the army responsible to? The Secretary of Defense. Who's the Secretary of Defense responsible to? The President of the United States. So, you know, you get an army platoon in this area, it's got a problem with the local population, 
going to get really difficult to 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 uh, uh, have any accountability to the local population. So local populations don't like that, okay? whether it's in the U.S. or anywhere else. We wouldn't like the army patrolling our streets rather than the police patrolling our streets. Second reason is because we know money corrupts. Okay? We've arrested multiple U.S. military uh, attaches in, around the world who got involved in the illegal drug trade using the diplomatic pouches. Okay? The FBI has talked about corruption levels in U.S. customs. Okay? We know the army is going to be affected if we use it in a big sense, uh, in a big way, against the illegal drug trade. And we don't want the army to be corrupted because we have other more important missions for the U.S. Army. Right? Okay? So, same thing in Mexico. They didn't want the army involved there because they want the Mexican army to do other things. Put down dissent if it's necessary, you know, guerrillas out there in Chiapas or whatever. All right? But they don't want them corrupted. So they hadn't used the army before, but by the end, uh, by the time uh, Calderon is, is looking at these levels of violence, um, you know, there's just no option but to use the army for a short to medium term. The idea isn't that the army will take over, but the army will drive down the incentives to violence, okay, at the same time that we'll reform the judicial system and the police. Okay, now that's a, that's a big challenge, uh, but that's the plan, or that was the plan. All right? And you can see that, in fact, in Mexico, the army did get corrupted uh, in different parts. The Zetas, uh, one of the drug trafficking organizations now, used to be an army elite el- unit, partly funded and trained by the United States. Um, All right, so the federal government can no longer ignore this. The security and the political costs uh, have become too high uh, for Mexico. Um, Now, in attacking that, I think that that what's been really important for Mexico and has been very difficult sometimes for the U.S. government and lots of times for the U.S. press to understand the distinction between the drug trade and the violence. Mexico wants to focus on that violence. It needs to focus on the violence. Can Mexico get rid of the illegal drug trade? We can't get rid of the illegal drug trade. So how do we expect Mexico to get rid of the illegal drug trade? So if if the Mexican government were to focus on the illegal drug trade, they would lose the battle. Because they'd be using their resources in an area that really doesn't have the impact where they're interested, which is the level of violence. So they have to focus on the violence and not the drugs. But when they focus on the violence and not the drugs, then we start, especially our press, picking up on, well, you know, but the Mexicans are not doing something about the drug trade. You know, and the drugs keep coming to the United States. You know, well, they're going to keep coming to the United States as long as we have that big sucking sound, right? Uh, All right, so uh, for Mexico... The focus has to be on the violence inside Mexico. For a period of time, the U.S. government, uh, particularly in the Defense Department, wanted Mexico to focus on the drug trade in Central America, right? And send Mexican troops to Central America to help Central Americans fight the drug trade, you know? And fortunately, the Mexicans said, are you crazy? You know, first of all, the Central Americans wouldn't want Mexican soldiers in Central America. Secondly, um, secondly, the... um, uh, 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 Mexico doesn't have uh, enough assets in their military to both work at home and work in Central America. 
and they don't want to build a huge military establishment. All right? So they want to focus their military uh, in Mexico. Um, ultimately, Mexico itself can't have much of an impact on that drug trade. The United States is the number four producer in the world of marijuana. And we're a law-abiding country. Our police aren't corrupt. Okay? Not at those kinds of levels that would explain that. So the drug trade is a whole different phenomenon. All right, this is ultimately what should happen if Mexico is successful. Uh, what you'll get is, okay, here's the flow, uh, the white uh, arrow, the big white outline, is the current flow of drugs from Colombia into Central America, into Mexico, uh, and then into the U.S., okay, the bigger ones. If Mexico is successful in this perimeter, because that's the Mexican strategy, is fight it at home and then do something about the perimeter in order to decrease the amount of these high-value products that are coming into Mexico, transiting Mexico. Mexico wants to reduce the level of cocaine and heroin from Colombia coming in, not because it thinks it's going to beat the drug trade, but because by reducing the volume of cocaine and heroin coming in, it's going to reduce the profits uh, in the industry and therefore re reduce the incentive to violence uh, in Mexico. So they are interested in that security perimeter here, and they're using U.S. aid for that. Uh, and ultimately what you should see if Mexico is successful is that the volumes will, will fall to here. That'll benefit Central America too. Because Central America is suffering from the, from the violence because the drugs are transiting Central America. The Colombians aren't thinking, oh man, Central Americans are rich, let's send a lot of cocaine to Central America. No, they're saying Central America is between us and that big piñata over there. <laughs> right? Um, so we got to get through Central America. And that creates the problem for Central America. So this, will, this strategy will actually benefit Central America as well. Will it benefit the United States? Probably not, because the drugs will find another way to get into the United States. As long as we suck, it'll come. It'll come different ways. It, you know, it comes from all different parts of the world. We don't hear much about Canada, right? But Canada's a big producer of marijuana and exports that marijuana to the U.S. Vancouver's a big transit zone for all the amphetamine-like substances from Asia that come into Vancouver and from Vancouver come to the United States. But we don't hear about Canada, the drug. The drugs come from everywhere. Ecstasy comes from Europe. How often do you hear about Holland and West Germany as big drug producers? But that's where they're producing ecstasy. And they're coming in from Rotterdam, the, the ports in Rotterdam. So the drugs are going to be coming to us as long as we want them. Uh, so that can't be Mexico's concern. Mexico's concern has to be focused on the violence. Fortunately for Mexico, violence and drugs are not inherently linked. Okay? If they were inherently linked, Mexico would be condemned. Okay? But they're not inherently linked. In the past they weren't, and in the future they don't have to be. Okay? They're linked now, but only because Mexico cannot increase the disincentives to violence among criminals. It's not eliminating criminals, it's the incentive to violence among criminals. As Mexico uses the army to increase the cost to criminals of the violence, and if it's successful in rebuilding that judiciary system so that in fact police can catch real criminals, and so that in fact the judicial system does punish criminals, then that also increases the cost uh, of violence because violent criminals are easier to catch than nonviolent criminals. Because as soon as you do violence, the citizenry says, I want something done about this. Okay? 
So let me leave it there. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.